uh, dealing still with these uh, regulations about the priests. We've looked at their uh, defilement for the dead. Now in 7 and 8, what area is dealt with uh, as far as the regulations for the priests? Who, can, who they can marry. And there are some restrictions on who they can marry. Who could they not marry? Yes, uh, uh, a uh, wicked woman, uh, an adulterous woman, or no, a divorced woman, because they're holy, and God's the one who, who makes them holy, and so they have to be careful about who they marry. They can't marry a woman who's been defiled by a prior marriage or by prior sexual involvement. Um... Because that's they're they're special to God. Their marriage has to be special in that sense. Do you have a question or a comment about seven and eight, James? In the Old Testament, there's kind of a related, not related question. Um, what were the laws of divorce? Well, um, <laughs> and there weren't a whole lot in Deuteronomy twenty-four. If a man. Um, found something uh, unclean in his wife, he could give her a bill of divorcement, send it into her, put it in her hand and send her out. Divorce her. And the rule was, if she remarried, then even if she later was divorced from her second husband, or her second husband died, she could never go back to her first husband because she had been defiled. But as far as rules about divorce itself, I don't know that they're working. It. Anybody want to contest that? <laughs> on that? If their hearts have been too hard to hear it. Do what? If their hearts have been too hard to hear it. Because now Moses didn't only gave them that law in the certificate of divorce because their hearts were not hard. Yeah, God more or less regulates divorce without approving of it specifically, but yeah. also without condemning it. Specifically in the Old Testament. John? Uh, what? Yeah. So, I think so. How were they supposed to be killed? Like with verse 9, if a daughter of a priest, does that differ from regular prostitutes? I don't have a good answer to that, other than, you know, they didn't always follow it. I just, I mean, like with Jesus in John 7 they were going to stone that woman whereas John 8 yeah whereas a priest daughter was supposed to be burned oh I see what you're saying yeah this question about the difference between the burning and the stoning I don't know why some are burning and some are stoning seems to kind of end up in the same place But he does specify the method in some of these cases. Yeah. You know, you wonder why it, why it would make any difference. I'd almost see that as saying, you need to get rid of them, you need to burn them. You know, you need to get rid of them, you need to stop them. <laughs> you know, as a, just as an exaggeration of the, of the, of the sentence. With as specific he is, though, I wouldn't want to burn someone that he said to stone. Right, yeah, I think, I think <laughs> we ought to do what he said. We have two examples, we have an example same sin with two different punishments. We don't, in Matthew 8, we don't know that she was the daughter of a priest. John 8, yeah. 
Chucky, I'm sorry. Over here, it is specifying the burning for the daughter of a priest. Right. Whereas a woman caught in adultery generically is supposed to be stuck. So, right. All right, well, when you're in trouble, now are you the daughter of a priest? <laughs> we got, you're going to get fire in one hand and we got stones in the other. So pick the poison. Well, you wonder if, I mean, I wonder, I don't know, thinking about this, it makes you wonder if perhaps the death by burning was considered the more severe punishment and that the daughter of a priest was to be punished a little, I don't know, I mean, maybe burning would be a more, uh, greater annihilation, you know, you cremate her instead of just killing her and leaving her body, I don't know. Burning definitely carries the idea of completely gone, like, I don't know, if you stone someone, they're still going to be there, what's left of them, but... Or they might even survive, Paul survived his stoning, didn't he? He did, although I think the idea was they were supposed to stone to death, but yes, he did. So there's no possibility if you sin and now you're being burned, you're not going to survive. You would think not. Is there an idea of purification by fire? That the, the priest's family was being purified by fire, and that's why it was a death by burning? It's an interesting idea. Almost a, basically almost a burnt offering. But you couldn't offer something unclean, so maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I said almost. Maybe it's kind of like how the some of the sin offerings were burnt outside the camp. Like they were in deer and had to be destroyed. What do you think about the, the profaning her father? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, in verse 9, you have this third category. You've got 1 to 6, the dead, 7 to 8, the marriage, and 9, his family. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father. So, I mean, the priest's family needs to be holy also. And it's like the behavior of the daughter here reflects on her father. Um, what what lessons or principles are there to learn from this? Does it remind you of anything in the New Testament? <coughs> Our behavior now as Christians will tell other people about what God is like. We are to reflect our Father in our conduct, be holy as he is holy. That's a good principle. Greater, greater privilege means greater responsibility. I think she is in a uh, situation where she's going to be, uh, where people are going to view her in a different way. Good point. Yes. Sarah? Does this refer to the virgin daughter of a priest still living in the house? Well, I guess she wouldn't be a virgin daughter anymore, but... Um, the daughter of a priest as opposed to a daughter who married is this a daughter in his house or a daughter not in his house or does it make any difference I mean it's a really good question I don't know that I've got the answer I don't think it makes a difference if she isn't married or not it says the daughter of a priest Yeah, if she if she's married and does this, 
does she still profane her father as well as presumably her husband? It, it, it kind of goes back to the responsibility thing. If she's married into another family, it's the responsibility of the husband or that family to take care of You would think that that would profane that family, not the priest. What you think? But the emphasis is on profaning the head that's over. So from that standpoint, we'd be saying that she would still be uh, more her father's daughter since she wouldn't have been married and be her husband's responsibility. That makes sense to me. I'm not sure that I can prove that, but that makes sense to me. Alan? Uh, back to that fire thing, maybe I shouldn't bring it up for the sake of time, but uh, I, that kind of reminds me of Hebrews 12, 29, where it says, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you think that might have any relevance? Might have. It's interesting that it says that she profanes herself, she profanes her father, and that it doesn't finish by saying that she profaned her God. Is that just to be assumed? I suppose. I mean, her father was a representative of God. Okay. You know, I mean, sin is more... I don't know, almost more defiling, more heinous for those who have been chosen by God to serve in a special way. Sin is, is horrible, but, but this is even, just has more serious consequences. And I mean, I would like to think that there would be some analogy at least with the requirements that the Bible gives for the children of elders. I mean, you know, they're to be faithful and not accused of, of riot or rebellion or whatever the different translations say. And, you know, sometimes that may seem to be like, well, that's, that's not very fair. I mean, that's not the responsibility of, of the elder, whatever his children do. And yet, um, it is a, I mean, the Bible presents it almost as a reflection on the father's ability to lead well his family. I think that's 1 Timothy 3. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just it, we wouldn't necessarily expect this here. Uh, but that I mean, we can understand requirements on the priest, but here's a requirement on his on his daughter. I mean, we do. De we definitely reflect on the Lord, but in a sense, our conduct is a reflection on our on our parents. You know, I mean, Proverbs says that a lot. You know, uh, Proverbs. 10 1, and there's a zillion of these that are, are like this, but uh, you know, it says that a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. And there's a lot of others that are similar to that. Uh, I have a question. John Mike says that was a regular highland supposed to be killed also? I think that's true. I mean, a regular harlot was to be killed. I mean, somebody yeah. caught in an act of fornication was to be killed. By a stone? stone did that. Right. So, I mean, that would be what that would involve, I believe. John quoted John 8, if I'm not mistaken. Right. John 8, you know, they want to know if they should have stoned her. Of course, in that case, both her and the man should have been stoned. And the fact that they caught her in the very act, <laughs> but they didn't bring the man indicate something kind of flaky about what they were doing, and Jesus perceived that. And in, in Deuteronomy 22, we've got the, uh, the 
incident where a man is, says, she wasn't a virgin when I married her, and <coughs> if there is no, if, if, if the charge is true and the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death because she's committed an act of uh, folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. So, good point. We have stoning of those who have committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Mm -hmm. Yes. Are there more specific rules for the high priest? Yes, yeah. that's the next section. Yes. The high priest is even <coughs> higher. Standard. These are just the rules for the ordinary priests. The dead, the marriage, and the family. Anything else through nine? Nine. Nine. German, no. Well, thank you for that. John. All right, uh, the high priest, 10 to 15. <coughs> the high priest, the one among his brothers who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean, even for his father or mother, nor leave the sanctuary of his God or desecrate it, because he has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God. I am the Lord. The woman he marries must be a virgin. He must not marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from his own people, so he will not defile his offspring among his people. I am the Lord who makes him holy. Alright, so this refers to the high priest. And his, um, the standards for him are even higher, because he has even a closer connection with the Lord. Remember, he was the one who would actually go into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. So, it's even a higher standard, both in connection with the dead, verses 10 to 12, and with marriage in 13 to 15. What is the higher standard in connection with the dead for the high priest? He couldn't approach any dead person, even his father or mother. He, he could only go to one funeral. His own. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. And that not in the capacity as high priest. You know. But yeah, exactly. Um, and it just shows you something. I mean, we see over and over again, God's standards taking priority over every human consideration, including even our family responsibilities. Yes. So if his dad dies, then he would immediately become high priest so he could go to his dad's I assume that's the case. But that's only if he's under 50, right? If the dad's because it says earlier in the that if he's over 50, he resigns and his son will take the post of high priest. Uh, well, the priests were to serve from 30 to 50. I'm not sure if that included the high priest. We kind of talked about this a little bit before, and I don't have real good answers on all this. Yeah, right. And we had said something about um, <coughs> the cities of refuge, that criminals had to go there until the high priest died. So if you have you know, a series of high priests that live over 50, <coughs> then people are going to be there for a long time. 
Yeah, that might have indicated that for the high priest you served until you died. Even though for the priest there was an age, upper age limit, you know, kind of retirement age or whatever. Yeah. I have a question on verse 14. When it says he's the Mary of virgin of his own people, does that mean of Israel or just to the tribe of Levi? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, the own people in 14, was that Israelite or Levite? Did they have to marry, they have to marry in their tribe? But generally. No, I don't think so. You're saying that the priests have to marry within the tribe? Well, yeah, no, I don't think so. Because there was always the question about the property. Yeah, family or land. If you married somebody from the wrong clan, then the property would go to the wrong person. And no, the property inheritance was not allowed to be transferred between tribes. Right, right. Which is but if why you married the someone outside, outside, someone else in your family would get the inheritance. That remained in your own tribe, I guess. It was passed through the mail, right? Son. But wasn't there that special circumstance when you had daughters? And was that in Numbers 36 or 27 or somewhere? I think it was 36. I almost thought because of land rights they weren't allowed to marry I don't think that's the case, but can somebody confirm for me that there was not a requirement that you had to marry within your tribe? You agree with that, James? You did not have to marry within your tribe? Numbers 36. Numbers 36. Because there was no men. They were all girls, right? Mm -hmm. So would it have been different if there had been sons? Just the property would have gone to the sons. So the girls could have married outside the tribe. Maybe if there were sons they could have? I don't know. But is it even prohibiting them? I think so. Well, okay. Six. Six. I think that's what he's saying. What's that? That, you know, if you if a daughter marries outside of her tribe, even if she's their only daughters, um, to her father, if she married outside her tribe, she couldn't gain the inheritance because the inheritance couldn't be transferred to another tribe. Yeah, well, the numbers 36 thing, it says, starting verse 6 here, this is what the Lord has commanded considering the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry whom they wish, only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father. I'm not sure if it says earlier that it says they did, you know, there, there were only girls in the family or what, or something or other, but for the inheritance to go to you know, that, kind of go to the brother instead. But I guess if there are no brothers or what. <coughs> to have the inheritance as only daughters, they could only marry inside their own tribe. I don't, but that's not the leave. Yes, in, in Numbers 27 3, Zalofa had had no sons. Right. Look in Numbers 36 8. It, said, it says in Numbers 36 8, it says, And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe. It doesn't say anyone. It says the wife that had, or the woman that has the inheritance. Yeah, and verse 9 kind of emphasizes that no inheritance shall be transferred from the tribe. So it's not that the people couldn't intermarry with the other Israelites 
just no land. Yeah, it's going to be, yeah. That's what I think. Yeah, that is. So if there were only daughters and family, they could make it basically work the way things work south. Unless the land goes, uh, suddenly belongs to nobody when they marry. They can only marry inside their own tribe, if that was the case. But that's not talking about, even talking about the Levites. That would be just like that. So can a Levite, uh, back, I'll go back to my original question, could a Levite, uh, Levite's priest marry outside of their tribe? Yeah, could, could they? Is there anything else anywhere else in the law that commanded the Levites how, and the priests to marry their own tribe? If a Levite man married <coughs> someone from Judah, does she become a Levite? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that, but I mean, the children would be Levites because he's passed the command. I don't know. I, I tell you, teaching Leviticus, I already knew this. I just didn't have time to do it. But, but you really need to do a detailed study of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and remember it all to, uh, to be able to teach Leviticus. And, uh, you know, we really, it would be very helpful and very interesting. Sooner or later, uh, you know, on my agenda would be to really learn the law comprehensively and try to deal with it. I don't know, you know, try to merge some of this information together and get a really comprehensive view of all the, the laws, because I just don't have that. I mean, I've never taught numbers, and I haven't taught Deuteronomy or Exodus all that much. So I do not have a real good command of anything outside of Leviticus. And even after you've studied Leviticus, it's hard to remember all the details. You know, some of the details jump out at you. Some of them seem more random, and they're harder, at least for me, to keep in my mind. I think what made me think that is um, going to Luke 1, you have Zacharias and Elizabeth, and it specifies Zacharias was priest, of course, but he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And that was making me think that there was something special about that. That can just be a coincidence. Well, I mean, it, it's saying that it's both from a priestly descendants. There may be something in the law that requires that. I'm not familiar with it, so I don't know. What was the additional regulation for the marriage of the high priest? Was there any? Yes. No widow. The priest could marry a widow. The ordinary priest couldn't marry a divorced person or someone who had been immoral. The high priest could not marry a divorced person, someone who had been immoral, or a widow. He had to marry a virgin. Now, a widow is not sinful for being a widow, but she, she's not a virgin. So he could only marry a, a virgin. Um, the, the standard for the high priest was high. What does it mean that he couldn't leave the sanctuary? In verse 12. Um, I think to, to <coughs> attend the funeral. Okay, so that's still in reference to the... I think so. I think so. Um, I have a question based on your answer to the question. Um, <laughs> were harlots supposed to be killed? Yes. Yeah, I mean, because a woman who was caught in an uh, act of fornication was to be killed. Then why would there be a question about a priest marrying a harlot? 
because they didn't always follow the law. But they didn't always follow the law. That'd be my answer. Wouldn't they need, they would need to have proof that she was a harlot. I mean, you may think someone is, and she may be, but without the testimony of two or three witnesses, she couldn't be put to death. So, I mean, that may be part of it. Yeah. That, that'd be my answer. All right, other comments or questions through verse 15? Yeah, Alan. I just like uh, in uh, 13 to 15 how he just leaves no provision for like any reasoning there. I mean, just a virgin, and he says nothing else. I mean, there's no debate there. He, he just tells them what they can marry and just eliminates all form of Yeah, there's no many ways to get around this, are there? Is there? No. Again, think about the priority of the Lord's call over personal choice, over family responsibilities, or whatever else. The Lord has the right to say, I've called you to this responsibility, and you can't do this, this, and this. I mean, you know, when we're called to a greater privilege, God does have greater responsibility. And we are God's priests, and so he has every right to tell us exactly what we can and can't do. And even though we may have, uh, you know, great passion for some woman or great sense of responsibility to our family or whatever. God's command takes priority. He did say that uh, high priests might go out of sanctuary things just for the funeral. That's what I think, yeah. Boy. I think it would be kind of hard to have a date to be able to marry somebody surrounded by a bunch of blood-stained altars. No, it could be. Boy. We, we need to get over this idea of it not being fair for us to be held to a higher standard ourselves because God holds some to a higher standard than, than others. Again, the privilege of uh, uh, being in this capacity means greater responsibility. Sometimes sometimes we think, well, you know, it's not fair for somebody to, uh, to look at me and hold me to a higher standard. God holds us to a higher standard. That's a really good point. That's a good thought. I mean, you know, there might be uh, evangelists or elders or whatever who would resent the fact that they, you know, might need to set an example that would be stricter and might resent the fact that their family would be looked at and have greater expectations. And, I mean, wow. We ought to seek to be that example. John? I'm having trouble getting a priest in mind. Um, Aaron's sons could be high priests? Well, Aaron's descendants in general were priests, Aaron's sons. And the high priest would normally be like the oldest son. Okay, but like. Yes, after they have advice. So, um, so either one of their sons could be high priest. Only the oldest, the oldest son of Aaron's oldest son. I think that's correct. Unless they both died and made the fourth son his only son. And then, so 
So were Levites priests? Yeah. Or just no. Levites well, priests. all yes. priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Because Aaron was a Levite, but there were many other Levites that were not of Aaron's family. Right. But only Aaron's family could be priests. Correct. Yes, that is correct. But uh, Aaron's family, everyone in Aaron's family wasn't necessarily priests. Well, not the girls. Obviously, you know. <laughs> but the sons, yeah. If they weren't, didn't have a defense as such. Yes, they couldn't. They couldn't serve as priests if they were defects. We'll see that in, in a later section. Yes. I'm not sure about this, but with Zacharias and Mary, or whatever her name was, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. If he was a son of Aaron, right? Aaron. Yes. Yes. And she was a descendant of Aaron as well. Yes. Is it just far enough removed that that could happen? Yes. Yeah. Hundreds of years. I mean, only cousins. I mean, even cousins can marry. Go ahead, sir. And to confuse you further, but not intentionally, you have the Levites and you have Aaron and his descendants. The other Levites were also involved in the priest in the, the temple service. I mean, when you think of the tabernacle um, in particular, like one tribe and one sub or one clan of the tribe of Levi, their job was to, you know, fold up the tent, and another was to carry this piece and that piece. So, all of the tribe of Levi was involved in the the worship, but only the sons of Aaron. Yeah, it's like here's the Levites and here's the the pre the, the pre Aaron the sons of Aaron the priests. So. Uh, other comes Jim. Quick question, go back to something we were talking about earlier. What tribe was uh, was Saul from? Benjamin. What tribe was David from? Judah. He married Saul's daughter. Correct. And so they can. David was the priest. No, no, it has nothing to do with just this priest. But, but it was our earlier discussion about whether you can marry outside of your tribe. Okay. And I just like, yeah. that's what stuck in my head. Uh, the other thing was this in context of what we were just talking about with the high priest. Uh, it's just really impressive to me as, as we come through here. He keeps talking about sanctification. That, that I sanctify. Yes. And I sanctify. Yes. And I don't hear, uh, when I hear people reading through or talking about the Old Testament, you don't hear about God sanctifying very much. But he says he did. He was the one who made holy. Yeah. Yeah. So we have that responsibility to him to live in a holy way. Other questions and comments through uh, 15? Okay, 16 to 24. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. 
he he may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy, both both the most holy and the holy. Only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar, because he has an effect, lest he profane my sanctuary. For I, the Lord, sanctify him. You say three twenty-four. Yes. And Moses told his Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel. Okay. Now here is another rule about the uh, about the priests, and that is that to offer sacrifices and to serve as priest, what was necessary? Yes, they had to be unblemished, just like the sacrifices they offered. You know that when you offered an animal in sacrifice, generally speaking, it had to be an unblemished animal. You couldn't take some diseased or sickly or, or defective animal and offer it, so also the priests that offered the animal had to be uh, without defect. They couldn't be handicapped, you know, we would say. That fits with this whole idea of the, the holy uh, sphere of, of service in, in the temple. Um, and he even specifies here some of the specific defects and uh, how if you've got one of these defects, you can't come near uh, to offer the Lord's offering because this is a special service and you have to be um, have, a, have, a, have a body that's, that's uh, undefiled to be able to offer that service. <coughs> what do you think about that? Their body is not perfect, so to speak. It's, it's uh, you know, unnaturally short. Now what about, I mean, like with a, with a broken foot or a broken hand, is that something that would heal that's a good question. I assume it would. Normally they do. I mean, that, I'm, so I'm assuming some of these might have been temporary conditions. Mine just says injured. Injured hand Well, the priest might have got their foot stumped with a big old burnt off. They <laughs> 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 pretty bad if they were all having, all of them were having to work at the same time to control the thing. They all got their foot feet stomped. That would be bad. Yes, James. <laughs> I don't, with the broken hand and the broken foot, I would view that as like a cripple. Um, I would in a way, somebody, not, not necessarily a temporary condition. Okay, my but, but a more permanent condition. Okay. So that you would be unable to, if you, I mean, if your hand doesn't heal properly, you're not going to be able to offer sacrifices quite as well. But I think the point here is not the ability to do it, but is the fact that you approach the Lord with a with a defect is is really just uh, an abuse of his holiness and sanctity. I mean a short person can still go up and do it. And even someone with eczema can go up and do it. They're physically capable. There's a phrase that's that's been repeated in this chapter that I was curious about. In verse seventeen, uh, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. And uh, earlier, back then, it was just talking about the, the marriage regulations for the priests in general. It talks about, in verse 6, the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. I had never heard the sacrifices of God referred to as the bread of their God. Yeah, we've got the food of their God. But yeah, there, that, is, that is found in a few passages. 
opinion expand on that at all? About why, the, why it's referred to as that? Well, I mean, it's almost a concept. Uh, that's the, the food, so to speak, we offer to God. Not that he eats it. Psalm 50 is pretty clear about the fact that if he's hungry, he wouldn't take one of he our sacrifices. But, but it, it's the food that belongs to God. I, I don't know. Would somebody have a better explanation than that? This, this, I was trying to read Leviticus before I got here. And, um, and I was reading 1 through 6, 7, or 8 or somewhere. And a couple times in there, it talks about the food or the bread of, of God. I mean, that this, these offerings are part of that. And, of course, now I can't find any of it, but that's okay. <coughs> there are some passages like that. I can't tell you where, but yeah. But then, it, I mean, that it, part of it, it, and that they can eat from this. and. So it's not that it's the food that God consumes, but no. it's the food that we offer to him. Yes. The food that belongs to him, perhaps even. But certainly not that he eats. Is there a difference between... The two translations of food and bread? Probably not a lot. Okay. What have you got, NIV? ESV. 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 I know that this passage always reminds me of the story of, of the Ethiopian youth and how, okay, I recognize he wasn't an Israelite, he wasn't of any of the tribes, he wasn't of the tribe of Levi, and he wasn't a priest, but because of his deformity, his defect, whatever you want to call it, he was not allowed to participate in the temple worship to the extent that others were. And yet in the New Covenant, there's no problem with him being able to offer praise and worship to God. And that's Isaiah 56. Yeah. that prophesied that the foreigner and the eunuch would be able to be brought in and, and be one of God's people in every sense. Uh-huh. Shay? I have a question. Um, this is just talking about the priest, right? Yes. That's the same thing anywhere else that says anybody with a deformity could not even offer a sacrifice to God? Yeah, there okay. are some statements. I mean, except for what I'm talking about, like, somebody that's got a deformity that there are some statements exactly how far they go I don't know Deuteronomy 23 1 is one of them uh, which says no one who is emasculated or who has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord uh, what, what did you say here Deuteronomy 23 1 that also it follows with illegitimate birth Ammonites or Moabites unto the tenth generation so there were at least some restrictions somebody give me better more information than that Well, now the point, oh, well, I don't know, I mean, how is a leper sin to be atoned for? Well, I mean, they couldn't offer a sacrifice. The, it says that he can be, something healed, he can be healed, 
maybe later if he was healed, he could come and offer sacrifice. If he was, but a lot of times they weren't. Well, then that could go on the question. How were they? I mean, how were they? How was their sin? Was their sin a home for on the Day of Atonement? Would that would they be included in the people of Israel being atoned for their sin? I don't know for sure the answer to that question. They wouldn't have the responsibility to do it if they didn't have the ability to do it. Would that follow? I'm not sure that's true. But I don't know. I'm not trying to judge them eternally in that. But we did make the point that the leper had to offer a guilt offering after he was cleansed. Correct kind of a reparation for the sacrifices and offerings that he had not given that he owed God but couldn't give him because he was a leper. But this seems to indicate that these are things that cannot be healed. It seems to indicate these are deformities that you cannot heal. In this passage we're dealing with the fact that he cannot be a priest to actually physically offer the offering. This passage at least is not talking about whether or not he could make it it, there could be a sacrifice made on his behalf, but that he could not be the officiating <coughs> priest to offer the sacrifice. Well, in Deuteronomy 21, but, but in that passage, he's be cut off from the congregation and clearly could not offer a sacrifice. And I'm not, I, I'm not trying to say that, that that's where somebody is eternally. I mean, I think we need to... Wow, I don't... I'm not far enough along in my thinking to formulate these things, but the... Sacrifices were definitely teaching principles for us. But I don't know that we should see the offering of the sacrifices as the determinative factor in the people's eternal destiny. Certainly there's a number of passages in the prophets where offering the sacrifices was not adequate if they didn't write. And you know, some indications that what God really wanted, Psalm 51, Micah 6, what he really wanted was faithful lives given to him. So, we, uh, I don't know, can somebody, somebody want to make a further statement on that? Uh, there's even that passage from somewhere, is it, I think it's, and I'm not sure, I've forgotten what I know about this, and I think I'm still divided on how to think of it. But Stephen, in his speech in Acts 7, quotes from Amos 5. Oh, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, in uh, Acts 7, 42, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrificed 40 years in the wilderness. Was it not? I mean, like there's something about that in Amos 5 that... You know, was his point that God was still in fellowship with them even though they didn't offer sacrifices during the time of the wilderness? That the sacrifices were not the main thing? That in Amos 5.25, that may be the point. There's some other possibilities on that. I've forgotten what I believe if I haven't defined it. But you might look at that. I, I don't think that the sacrifices were ultimately the factor in their eternal destiny. But I do think we ought to see this as teaching the principles and concepts of our service to God. Sarah and then Shane. If you look at Isaiah 56, um, it talks about, uh, in verse 4, 
For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and with them a memorial, and name better than that of sons and daughters, I will give them an, an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. Uh, for my house will be called a house of prayer for most. And this seems to suggest that a eunuch and a foreigner who could not participate in the assembly could still keep the Sabbath and choose what pleases God and hold fast to the covenant in the hope that at some point they would be allowed into the assembly and that their sacrifices could be acceptable. So... Looking for one of Christ when that was realized. Right, but I mean, even though this was ultimately fulfilled later, the idea is that a unit can still keep the Sabbath and treat his brother properly and do, do the right things under the covenant, even if he cannot enter the assembly of the Lord to offer sacrifice or whatever. That makes sense. <coughs> good, good question. So I was saying before we cut now, four questions per question. Okay, I'm, I'm waiting to do that. Uh, I was going to say that if what you were saying, if, because if the person that was had some kind of defect would, could not offer, it'd be kind of like, I think we may have mentioned this with the leprosy, it'd be really hard not to be bitter. Because you could not come near your God, you could not offer someone for sin. And it just wouldn't be the atonement for sin, it'd be being, I guess you could say, excommunicated from God. You wouldn't be able to come and worship God. And itself would be a punishment enough. And, you know, sometimes we think it may be unfair, but I, I think it'd be really hard not to be bitter. Because, I mean, they didn't do anything. I mean, they were born with this. Or if something happened to them, I mean, to, be, I mean, to me, I mean, yeah, I think it'd be. Very hard. Very hard. Good comment. I don't have a lot of response to that, but I think you're right. You think more of the ten lepers would have been grateful? Yes. Considering all of this at their healing. That's a good point. Just then again, depending on how long the lepers have been lepers, they might have been anxious to see their families. <laughs> yes. I think that may well be the point. But gratitude should come before the enjoyment of the blessing. Yeah. Well, they, were, they were glad to be healed, but uh, thankful for the right one. Yes. I think really important lesson in that for us. Definitely. Well, there was a provision here that shows God's mercy and compassion to the handicapped priests. And what was that? Yes. He was not, because he was blemished, allowed to serve altar, but he was not reduced to poverty or forced to make his living with another profession. He could still enjoy the sacrificial food as far as to, to feed himself. Um, it kind of reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. It's kind of like this. 
of someone who was handicapped, who was uh, blessed with the opportunity to eat the food. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. David, which is found where in the Bible? What book? Second Samuel. What chapter? Um, so this, this I think, is a, a, a merciful provision on God's part. It's just that he can't do the service in the tabernacle because he's been defiled. God's not trying to, from, from, from being provided for, but as a defiled, as a handicapped person, him coming before God and offering the offering, God's a holy God, and that just can't be. The lesson, of course, for us is that we can't be spiritually defiled and come into God's presence. I mean, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, 1, especially 2 Corinthians 7, 1. You know, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holy in the fear of God. I think that's an excellent passage to, to make the spiritual application for us. Can you repeat that? 2 Corinthians 7, 1, that we're to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Yeah. I, I have this bad history and he just constantly he, all he wants to do is debate and argue and uh, just that itself is ridiculous but uh, one of his ideas was you know he was like oh one time I almost you know you know couldn't take the Lord's Supper because you know I wasn't right and it's like he's like well you can't you can't take the Lord's Supper or do certain things if you're not right with the Lord and you know, I'm, I'm here thinking, well, what you do is you get right. I mean, <laughs> you do it. I mean, whatever it takes. I mean, that's that's how serious it is. And you, you don't make excuses. You do it. I agree. Sorry. I was going to say one of the principles of that, or that teaches that principles. If you go to offer a sacrifice and somebody you've got something against somebody or they've got something against you, leave your sacrifice, go fix it, and then you come back and you offer. That's right. So I mean that's the same idea. Though I mean I whenever I first became a Christian, I had that same I had that question once. I said, So, you know, if you've got this thing and you can't forgive this person, like which is which is the greater sin? To take of the Lord's Supper when you can't forgive someone or to not partake, even though it's commanded. <laughs> Repent. <laughs> it's, not an, it's not an uncommon teaching, so sadly. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. It's a very serious thing for taking the Lord's Supper, and we need to take that very seriously. But the answer is not just to think, well, since I'm I'm not where I ought to be, I'll just uh, abstain from the Lord's Supper, as if that was that then made it okay. We need to repent, and we need to we need to continue to maintain our communion with the Lord in the Lord's Supper. Uh, but but we do need to take that seriously. This doesn't have a whole lot to do with this, but I read a really good quote. So not <laughs> Just talking about you know the idea that uh, you know so it seems unfair to exclude these priests. So, uh, I read, above average height and freedom from lameness are currently prerequisites to consideration for a position on an NBA team. Oh. 
So, you know, we understand the idea that there are certain qualifications, you know, behind something. That is a good question. Above average height and freedom from lameness are currently prerequisites to consideration for a position on an NBA team. I thought that was a cool thing you said. Generally speaking, those things are not especially. <laughs> All right, well, that's chapter 21, man. It has taken us a while, but we'll plow ahead here. Tw chapter 22, verses, um, I don't know, let's go ahead and read uh, 1 to 16. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so as not to my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any man among all of your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy gifts which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am the Lord. No man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or who has a discharge may eat of the holy gifts until he is clean. And if one touches anything made unclean by a corpse, or if a man has a submission, or if he touches any teeming things by which he is made unclean, or any man by whom he is made unclean, whatever his uncleanness, a person who touches any such shall be unclean until evening, and shall not eat of the holy gifts unless he has bathed his body in water. But when the sun sets, he shall be clean, and afterward he shall eat of the holy gifts, for it is his food. He shall not eat an animal which dies or is torn by a beast, unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, so that they may not bear sin because of it, and die thereby because they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. No layman, however, is to eat the holy gift. A sojourner with a priest or a hired man shall not eat of the holy gift. But if a priest buys a slave as his property with his money, that one may eat of it, and those who are born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter to a layman, she shall not eat of the offerings of the gifts. But if a priest's daughter becomes a widow or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she shall eat of her father's food, but no layman shall eat of it. But if a man eats a holy gift unintentionally, then he shall add to it a fifth of it and shall give the holy gift to the priest. They shall not profane the holy gifts of the sons of Israel which they offer to the Lord, and so cause them to bear punishment for guilt by eating their holy gifts. For I am the Lord who sanctifies that. All right. Essentially, this chapter is dealing with what? Or this part of the chapter? Holy gifts. And doing what with holy gifts? Eating them. Now, um, we're thinking here about what in terms of holy gifts? All right, the portion of various sacrifices that belong to priests, no part of which sacrifice belonged to the priest. The burnt offering. But parts of all the other sacrifices belonged to the priest unless it was for the priest himself. Perhaps also we ought to include not just the portions of the sacrifices that belonged to the priest, but what else? The tithes, the first fruits, 
things of that nature. So we're dealing with things that would be brought to the Lord that the Lord assigned to the priest. There were some conditions on the priest actually being able to eat those things. Ordinarily, the priest would have certain uh, of these holy gifts assigned to him. Uh, but there are, are some various limitations that he needs to think about with that. In 3 to 7, he can't eat those holy gifts under what circumstances? Yeah, that's true, but to 7, he's not to eat of these holy gifts under what circumstances? If he's unclean. During the period of his uncleanness, he was not to eat of these holy gifts. They were special. And he had to be cleansed properly before he could eat of them. And so he gives, uh, he says in verse 3, if he does, he'll be cut off from before me. That's a very serious thing. And he goes through uh, a variety of situations uh, in which he would be Unclean. Now, I don't think he's limiting it to these situations. He's just giving us some illustrations. Some of them would have been semi-permanent, like a leper. You know, he might have not been able to eat of the holy sacrifices for good if he was never cleansed of his leprosy. Others, as uh, uh, someone who would perhaps touch a, a dead animal, or someone who would have a relation with his wife, or whatever. That might just be uncleanness that would be over at evening uh, with nothing being done. It was just kind of a day-long uh, uncleanness. So um, you have a variety of, of specifics as far as some, some illustrations of what might make you unclean. But the point is, as long as you are unclean, you, the priest could not eat of those holy things that had been ordinarily assigned to him. The priest also needed to be careful not to eat an animal that just died of itself in 8 and 9, or was killed by a beast or something like that. Um, and he says in verse 9, They shall therefore keep my charge so that they will not bear sin because of I thereby, because they profane it. Ordinary Israelites were not to eat animals, uh, like that, roadkill, <laughs> or, or animals that just die. <laughs> but if they violated that, chapter 17, verses 15 and 16, they just had to purify themselves. The priests here are subject to God's death penalty if they eat, you know, roadkill or, or things of that nature, animals that ha they had not uh, directly killed. So the priest has more risks. He has a higher standard again. Uh, so that one through nine is essentially regulating what the priest could eat. Starting in verse 10, we'll look at other people related to the priests and what they could eat. But 1 through 9 is what the priest can and cannot eat. Do you have a question or comment on that section? Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, you're uh, very trustworthy. Um, in verse 9, it says they will die thereby because they profaned it if they eat the yes. roadkill. Now, does that mean that the punishment for a priest eating roadkill <coughs> is that he'll be, say, stoned or burned or whatever, or that he'll just die because he eats it? 
I think it means God will see to it that he dies. Okay. But it's I, not necessarily a punishment in the sense of, you yeah. know. I don't think that the people were to execute yeah, him. I think God would take care of him. Okay. That's what I think. Well, not if you were a priest. <laughs> right. So you're talking about divine intervention. Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. divine intervention. Right. It's my understanding. It's my take. Okay. I don't want to eat roadkill anymore. <laughs> well, in Ohio, if you hit a deer, you're supposed to take it. <laughs> I think deer are so unpredictable, I'm not sure you could hit them in a car. <laughs> Purposely. Yeah, he's. Of course, you can't see one deer crossing the road uh, floor. You'll hit the second one behind. <laughs> That's often true. I live in a very deer-populated county, so. <laughs> All right. Uh, other questions or thoughts through nine. Ten to sixteen. The the family members of the priests. Basically speaking, a non-priest was not supposed to eat of the holy gifts. However, there were exceptions. His family could eat of the holy gifts, and even a slave that he bought, uh, or a slave that was born in his family, they could eat. Um, the priest's daughter, she could eat unless. <coughs> she married. No, she married a non-priest. But then if she was widowed or divorced and didn't have any children, she could come back into the priest family and eat of that. The assumption, I think, is that the widow with children would be supported by her dead husband's family. But if she had no children, then she'd come back into the priest family and she could then again eat of the holy gifts. So God was very particular about who could eat of those. The, the idea is the things of God are very holy. You can't you know, you've got to be very careful to treat God's holy things according to his regulations. You can see that point, can't you? <laughs> All right, comments and questions through uh, 2216. In verse 13. Yes. Um, the idea of returning to her father's <clears throat> house, as in her youth, the idea then is to be under the authority of her father again? And to live in his home, I assume. I mean, it's not just <clears throat> you move back in for a couple days or necessarily. I think more the idea of moving in permanently or semi-permanently. She's not. <coughs> yeah. Shane. In verse 14, it's talking about man eats, it, the whole, eats a holy offering, offering unintentionally. What if he has it intentionally? What well, there was really not a sacrifice for intentional sin. In general, I don't know that there's anything they could really do about intentional sin in terms of offering sacrifices. Uh, pray for forgiveness. Humble themselves, but as far as... Intentional sin usually led to death. No, I'm talking about like, in verse 14 says, right. when, he, when he eats the holy offering unintentionally, <clears throat> he shall restore the holy offering to the priest and add one fifth to it. What if he did it unintentionally? Then there was nothing to be done. That's my understanding. I think that was pretty commonly the way that was. If you did something intentionally, there wasn't really much you could do to be restored into the fellowship of God. I think it's Numbers 15 and 30 says that you 
seems intentionally just cut off. Hebrews 9 talks about that. Hebrews 10? Hebrews 9, uh, 6. Okay, yes. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional saint. Good point. But if he sinned intentionally, yeah. then you're over. You're over with. Yeah, I don't think that necessarily meant that there was no hope. <laughs> David sinned intentionally, yeah. and he, though he could not offer sacrifice, he knew that the sacrifices were a broken and contrite heart that God would not despise. Yeah. So I don't think it meant you were supposed to just quit trying, but there was really not a sacrifice for that. One thing that's interesting here, if you have this, if, if you were to eat intentionally because you were hungry, so what? It's still a problem. But you notice that you're only unclean for a lot of these things that are listed here until the sun sets. So it's not, you're never going to get food again. It's you have to wait until you're clean and so, I mean, the idea of having self-control and self-discipline, I'm unclean, I'll have to go without eating of the holy gifts, the holy offerings, until the sun sets and I'm clean, and then I can eat. <coughs> so, I mean, you can't say that, oh, look, he's denied food and, and therefore the hungry thief who steals is still a thief. Good point. I mean, you know, you see in all of this, God expects us to control ourselves. <laughs> you know, we can't just say, well, I really felt like eating. I just couldn't contain myself, you know. Of course we can contain ourselves. Nobody makes us eat. And it's okay for God to expect us not to for a period of time. <clears throat> Is there a direct understanding of the, you know, God, the Holy Spirit, because it, it seems like to me the New Testament is all about you know it's still about God the Father where it's it's about uh, God the Son the fulfillment of you know God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and it seems like back then it, it would matter physically what you did you know sacrificially now it's the it's the concept if you do something intentionally you do it against the Holy Spirit and there are Okay, they had some con some concepts of uh, of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I mean, the Spirit of the Lord even moving on the face of the waters in Genesis one, and uh, I'm thinking Nehemiah nine thirty admonished them by your Spirit to the prophets, but through your prophets. But it certainly wasn't nearly as developed. The Lord did not reveal the degree of detail about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that He did. Seen by the one that eyes heard by heedless ears. Other comments, questions, thoughts through 2216. 
Is, is there anything more significant about the layman here that, than just that he was a non-priest? That's what I assumed by it, just okay. meant a non-priest. Yes. David ate the showbread once, no, didn't he know he'd only get He did. And I couldn't find that. Yeah, uh, well, that's First uh, Samuel 21, referenced in Matthew uh, 12 and Mark 2. And Leviticus 24 is specifically going to say that the showbread in uh, verse 9, for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him for the, from the Lord's offerings by fire his portion forever. So Leviticus 24, 9 tells us that the showbread was only to be eaten by the priests and uh, his sons. Um, and so David really didn't do the right thing. He, he sinned when he ate that showbread. And that's what Jesus said about it in Mark 2, that he ate the bread that was not lawful for him to eat. Could you touch something that was clean that you didn't kill? Like those when even touching a dead clean animal made you defile I believe what that's what we yeah. read back in wow which chapter was that in Leviticus Seven, no 11 in Leviticus 11 I believe look at it like 1139 I think Yeah. Also, if one of the animals dies, which you have for food, that would be a clean animal. The one who touches its carcass becomes unclean until eaten. So that's Leviticus 11.39. Death of any sort was associated with sin. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Right. So even, a, even touching the body of a dead, clean animal makes you unclean until eaten. Unless you kill it. That's, that's the distinction. Of course, if you killed it a few days before and now you're just getting around to it, it's another story. I don't know about that. Can you see how that every move that they made, even in the daily activities of their life, reminds them or keeps them, keeps God in their memory, keeps their relationship with God in their memory? Good point. Yeah, they, they had that, yeah. They, they don't look forward and see how weird it is compared to them. We, we're looking back. You know, that's, that's all we've got. You know, that's all they had. As a, you know. Yeah, you know, it doesn't it teach you that God has every right to tell us every move to make? It does. You know? We feel so, you know, bothered by, you know, not having our freedom and our rights and all of that. Well, I mean, God... God made us. I mean, and he made everything we have. He has every right to regulate every detail about what we do with those things. And sometimes I think, you know, maybe looking at this will help us appreciate the God who, who sanctifies us. Other thoughts? All right, well, here's my plan. It is 12. Why don't we take a 15-minute break Come back and study for about an hour and a half, and you may be a little hungry by then, but that'll help keep you awake, and we've just studied that you can uh, go 